Good morning. The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1535. Listen as I read God's word. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and it's great to be back here with you this morning. Our family was away last week visiting Dina's parents who live now in Montana, and so we were out there for the last couple of weeks, and we had a great time. A couple of the things we did while we were out there is we hiked through some massive cedars. These things were basically twice as old as our country is, and they were just huge. So we did some hiking in the giant cedars. Uh, we saw lots of wildlife, including these friends, which was fun. 
that little chipmunk just sat there and stared right at me like, I dare you take a picture. And of course I did. So uh, we saw lots of wildlife, saw lots of like really just majestic looking bald eagles. And I was uh, just very thankful that, the, that our country's founders decided to choose the bald eagle as the symbol for our nation instead of the turkey, which I think was the other... Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad they chose the eagle over the turkey. Uh, that was the other option, and they, they chose the right one with the majestic eagle. Uh, also, there was plenty of mountain hiking. Uh, I only did two mountains this year because we just didn't have enough time. Uh, but this is a view from the top of Goat Peak, it's called. And as you can see, this is a beautiful, wonderful, clear, sunny day where you can just see for miles. And the next hike that we went on, I went on with my brother-in-law, Tyler, and we climbed to the top of a mountain that was just right across the river from where her parents live. And as we're climbing up, we're noticing that the clouds aren't just, it's not just like cloudy outside. The top of the mountain is in the clouds. And so we're like, okay, well, I guess we're going to just pray that it clears up by the time we get there, or else we're just literally going to climb up into the middle of a cloud. And so we decided to do that because it was still pretty epic, and that's what it looked like. Uh, It was like, you can see that tree that's right behind him, but you couldn't see more than about 20 feet in front of you. And it was actually uh, just bizarre, because when you look at the sky, normally you can see like clouds or shades or whatever, and you can see some like depth to it. You look out and and it's just, you, you have zero depth perception because it's just white, because you're in the middle of a cloud. (laughs) And of course, then as soon as we were going to leave, it started to clear up and uh, we were able to uh, snap a picture from the top there. But anyways, I did lots of mountain hiking, lots of fun stuff, and we are glad to be back home. And we are glad to be back here with you. Uh, We did go to a church in the city of Thompson Falls while we were there last Sunday. And while it was great, especially for me to just be able to go to church, because I don't get to do that, right? (laughs) You know, when you go to a church in a different state that's like 20 hours driving away, it's like no one knows you're a pastor, you don't have anything to say or prepare or anything to do, and you can just go to church, and it's great. Uh, So even though that was a wonderful experience, uh, it also reminded us that this is our home, and you are our people. And so we're just really grateful to be back here uh, with you today. So enough about vacation. Uh, Let's talk about important things like the Bible. So, Uh, With that, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we look at this passage. God, we never cease to be amazed by the wonder and the beauty of the gift of your word. Your word is a treasure. It is filled with beauty. And we love your word because it points us, it tells us about our Savior Jesus. We ask that as we look at these passages today and as we look at these stories of healing, that you would open our minds, open our eyes to what is here. And we pray that you would help us to be changed people as we leave here. We desire to encounter Jesus. We desire to be changed into his likeness and the power of the Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been making our way through the book of Mark. And as we've done that, we've noticed along the way that there's been a handful of clusters. 
Mark likes to do that. He likes to cluster different stories together. And usually they're on the same theme. So we've seen a cluster of stories towards the beginning where Mark tells us about these conflicts and controversies that erupt between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've seen uh, clusters of stories where Jesus teaches parables and Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. And those are sort of all uh, clustered together in one section. And then where we're entering today is into a cluster of three stories that show Jesus in Gentile territory where he's, for most of his ministry, he's been focused exclusively on these predominantly Jewish areas, and he's gone to Gentile places occasionally. But in this section, we see him uh, for three consecutive stories in Gentile territory. And so we're going to look at those first two stories today and the last one next week. And it's just been amazing uh, to me anyways to see how everything that's in the book of Mark has something unique to contribute to our understanding of who Jesus is. And so it's not just the the actions of Jesus that are important. It's not just the words of Jesus that are important. We learn not only from those things, and certainly from those things, but also from the way that we see others interacting with each other, and the ways we see others interacting with Jesus, and the things that other people say. All of those things contribute, not just the words and the actions of Jesus, contribute to our understanding of who Jesus is, and what it means to follow him, and what his kingdom is like, and what it looks like to live as members of his kingdom. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two miracle, uh, these two accounts of Jesus healing people, and there is just so much to learn and explore, and so uh, let's jump in and do that together. As we look at this passage, the first thing we see is this, in the kingdom of God, there is more than enough. In the passage, it was just immediately before this that Chad so skillfully led us through last Sunday. In that passage, we see Jesus coming into conflict with the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, over matters of ritual purity and over matters of ritual cleanliness. And then immediately after that, Mark tells us about Jesus going into Gentile territory, where he spends what looks like an extended period of time surrounded by people that would have been considered ritually and ceremonially unclean. And so the first place we see Jesus is in this region of Tyre. And while they were there... Presumably, Jesus' disciples are there with him. And while he's there, Jesus uh, and his disciples, they wanted to remain anonymous, which uh, we've seen that before in the book of Mark. And it's almost impossible for that to happen. Everywhere Jesus goes, he tries to get away. He tries to retreat. He tries to remain anonymous. And people always find where he is and seek him out. And so there's this woman that we read about who runs up to Jesus and she falls down at his feet and she begs for the life of her daughter. She says, my daughter is uh, possessed by this unclean spirit, this demonic spiritual force, and I need you to bring healing to my daughter. If we've been tracking along in the book of Mark, you'll notice that this is almost identical to what we saw in chapter 5, where a wealthy Jewish synagogue leader named Jairus runs up to Jesus and falls at his feet and begs for the life of his daughter, who is on her deathbed, she's going to die. And so we see a Jewish synagogue leader and this Syrophoenician Gentile woman doing almost exactly the same thing. And as we see that, when we hold these two stories side by side, uh, it doesn't look very good. Because in response to the desperation of this wealthy Jewish synagogue leader, who says, my daughter is dying, Jesus says, let's go. And he's going to go heal this man's daughter. When this woman falls before Jesus, this Syrophoenician, Gentile 
woman falls before him and begs for the life of her daughter, Jesus calls her a dog. And it's like, okay, well, that happened. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of, uh, like, consternation over this, right? This is one of those things where we read it, and it's like, that just feels so wrong. And there's, there's just been lots of people who have been really troubled by Jesus saying what he says. In verse 27, where when she begged to drive the demon out of her daughter, Jesus said, first, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Let's back up for a moment and just state the obvious, that when Jesus talks about the bread going to the children and to the dogs, the children are the people of Israel and the dogs are the Gentiles. Okay? So just make sure that's clear. Even that in and of itself is like abrasive to us, but the force of this doesn't even quite land on us because in our modern context, dogs are house pets. Okay? Many of you have wonderful cuddly, cute, lovable dogs that you spend a lot of money to take care of and to feed and you take pictures of them and you groom them and all these things. Dogs are like a wonderful house pet in our environment. But in the first century world, dogs were not cute, cuddly house pets. Virtually no one had dogs as house pets. Dogs were in that particular environment. They were wild, ravenous, disease-carrying scavengers. More like wolves than like the chihuahua that you may have inside your house, right? Very different thing, very different thing. So to call someone a dog was one of the most derogatory things you could say to a person is to call them a dog. And that's what Jesus says here is, let's not take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And so the question is, what in the world do we make of this? Well, we can't get around the fact that Jesus said it, okay? Uh, we can't get around the fact that Jesus did say something that was abrasive. He did say something that would have been received as offensive. And so we can't, uh, as some people have maybe tried to do, like, you know, uh, say, well, he wasn't really saying this or that. And they try and soften the blow of what Jesus is saying. I don't think we should do that. Jesus did say something that was offensive here. And the question is, okay, well, why did Jesus say this? We've got a few options when we come to something like this that strikes us as so offensive is we need to either basically throw out everything we know to be true about Jesus and let this one instance that makes us offended redefine what we believe about who Jesus is. So we can either throw out everything we know or the other option is that we need to, in humility, recognize there may be another explanation there may be a good reason why Jesus said the thing that he said, and we want to pursue what that is. And so you can sort of guess where my leaning is on this. Uh, the question is, why did Jesus say this offensive thing? I want to uh, suggest this morning that it's possible for two things to be true at the same time. That Jesus did say something really offensive, and the offensive thing Jesus said was an act of love for this woman. As counterintuitive as it may seem on the surface, what Jesus says to this woman, he's not slamming the door in her face. He's not turning her away. He's not pushing her away. He's drawing her near. Jesus recognizes that this woman has faith, and he's drawing this faith out of her. And the, and the way that he does that is by creating this sort of zero-sum situation. 
Okay? Zero-sum situation is where you have a fixed amount of things, and if one person has more, it means that by definition, another person has less. And if this person has more, it means this person has less. And so what he's saying is he's setting up this situation where he says, okay, either the children can have the bread or the Gentiles, the dogs can have the bread, but they can't both have the bread. That's the situation that Jesus is setting up here. And he's creating this zero-sum situation for this woman, and he's drawing out her faith. What's interesting is that this woman does not see Jesus' response to her as a closed door. She views it as an invitation to continue pressing into Jesus. She views it as an invitation to press further and to ask again. And she says, in verse 28, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. A faithless person would have seen this as a closed door. A faithless person would have said, well, I tried. And Jesus turned me down and he called me a dog. And what what am I supposed to do? I I I gave it my best shot. A faithless person would have seen this as a closed door. A faithless person would have seen this Uh, would have heard this and been offended by this, would have um, taken offense at this, and yet she doesn't have either of those responses. She views this as an opportunity, as an invitation to press in to Jesus. And she essentially says, when she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs, what she's saying is, I know because I've heard about this God that salvation has come to the Israelites. But there's more than enough to go around. You see, she recognizes that even the crumbs under the table are enough for the Gentiles. And so what she's recognizing is she, in her response, it's revealing what she believes to be true about who God is. That with him, there is more than enough. She's saying even the crumbs that fall underneath the table. Now, I don't know about you, but depending on your child, you can just imagine how many crumbs are under the table and how much like full pieces of food are on the table. That's a whole different thing. I don't know if that was what Jesus meant here. But you can just imagine that, you know, the crumbs under the table, this woman believes that the leftovers, these crumbs that fall on the floor are more than enough, that they are enough to fully satisfy her. And so she asked Jesus, even for these crumbs, So Jesus sees faith in her, and he's loving her by further drawing out that faith that he sees in her. This is a test of her faith. And as you can see, she passes the test. Jesus says to her, in verse 29, For such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So Jesus was testing her faith. She passed the test. She believed that in the kingdom of God there is more than enough. This is good news not just for her. This is also good news for us as well. Uh, Primarily because to my knowledge, I could be wrong, there's none of us who are sitting in the room who are ethnic Israelite, who are ethnically Jewish. Maybe you can go back far enough in your family tree to find like a person. But none of us are the children that Jesus is talking about in this passage. So just using the language of this passage, using the language of Jesus, we sitting in this room, we are the dogs. And the good news is that even the crumbs that fall underneath the table are more than enough to satisfy us. God's mercy and his grace have so overflowed that even the leftovers are more than enough to fully satisfy and to fully provide every single thing that we need. God's deliverance in Jesus has overflowed to us. 
And so even those crumbs are more than enough. So that's what we see in this first healing account, is that in the kingdom of God, there is more than enough. The second thing we see as we look at this next healing story is in the kingdom of God, all things are made new. In the kingdom of God, all things are made new. So they left Tyre and went down to the region of the Decapolis. And when they arrived in the Decapolis, there was a group of people who immediately, again, recognized Jesus, saw him, ran up to him and said, hey, we have this friend of ours who can't hear and he can't speak. We want you to put your hands on him, which is a way of saying we want you to heal him. So in verse 33, we read this. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephetha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. If you've been following us through Mark, or if you're just familiar with the Gospels at all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you know that this way that Jesus heals here is rather unusual. We've seen many times in the book of Mark that Jesus simply speaks and people get healed. Sometimes Jesus puts a hand on someone, but it's not that he needs to touch them in order to heal them. There's, there's a, a symbolism in him touching them. We saw even with the, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, Jesus simply spoke, and from a distance, she was healed. The, the demon was, was cast out of her. So Jesus doesn't need to do all this, like, touching and whatever. But we see here this sort of unusual case of Jesus putting his fingers in the man's ears and touching his tongue. So he's touching the organs that need to be healed. And there's all this, it's, it's, it's weird, to be honest with you, to think about Jesus using his spit. That weirds me out a little bit. <laughs> I'd be like, Jesus, if there's any other way you could do this besides, like, spitting and then putting it in my mouth, that'd be great. <laughs> But that's not what happened. So, you know, it's unusual. It's strange. And we should just observe that this is different. And while it may be tempting for us to sort of go down the trail of saying, well, you know, why was it this way? And, you know, there's lots of stuff we can think about in that. I think it's, it's more important for us to, instead of being focused on what makes this unusual, is to look at what makes this healing exactly like every single other healing in the book of Mark. And that is that Jesus himself is the source of healing power. Jesus, again here, he spoke and this man could hear and could speak once again. Jesus didn't use any sort of like magical incantation. He didn't, uh, he didn't even pray. He simply spoke and this man was able to hear and able to speak once again. So Jesus himself is the source of healing power. And the healing itself is important, but what I want to sort of focus our attention to is the response of the people. Listen to verse 37 where it says, People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So the people are amazed, and they exclaim these two things. And both of the things that they exclaim are echoes, they're hyperlinks or allusions to passages from the Hebrew Bible. The first one is from Genesis one thirty one, when it says, He has done everything well. In Genesis 1, God speaks, and everything in creation comes out of nothing. And then after doing all of the work of creation, God steps back and he surveys his creation, 
And the text says, he saw what he had done, he saw what he had created, and it was very good. In other words, he saw that he had done everything well. The Greek text of this passage and the Greek translation of uh, Genesis 131 have a lot of similarities between them. And so this is a clear allusion to when they say he's done everything well, it's, it's, it's supposed to draw our minds to Genesis 131. The second passage that we are drawn to here is Isaiah chapter 35. So when the people say he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I'll give you another assignment. I like giving these assignments is sometime this week, spend time just reading Isaiah 34 and 35 together. Just sort of read them, just make observations, take notes, whatever. Just sit in it and see what there is uh, for you to glean. I'll give you a little bit of uh, the Cliff Notes version. But what we see here in Isaiah 34 and 35 is in chapter 34, we see that God is uh, proclaiming his coming justice or his coming judgment on the nations. And the images that he uses to describe the coming of his justice is he uses images of decreation. He uses images of uncreation. So listen to chapter 34, verse 9 and 10. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her lands will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So this beautiful land will become uncreated. And it's a picture of God's justice. Then in chapter 35, we see God giving hope for the future redemption of his people. And the language that's used to describe God's deliverance is language of recreation or new creation. So listen to chapter 35, verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And then he uses these images to describe this sort of new creation, this recreation. He says in verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So describing this sort of act of new creation, this act of recreation in God's deliverance, he uses the image of a person's ears being opened and a person's tongue being loosed. And so that's what Mark is uh, drawing our attention to by recording the response of these people. So just notice how there are two sort of hyperlinks in this passage to Genesis 131 and Isaiah 35, 5-6. There's two hyperlinks, one of them to creation, one of them to recreation or new creation. And so when this man was healed, when this man received his sight back, when he received his hearing and his speech back, this was a down payment for something that was even greater to come. You see, healings like this, all of the healings we see Jesus doing when he drives back the powers of sin, when he reverses the effects of sin, all of the healings that Jesus does are not an end in themselves. As wonderful, as great as they are to receive your sight back or your hearing back or your speech back or to receive your ability to walk back, whatever it is, all of those things are wonderful gifts from God and they're not the point. They point us to something even better, which is the restoration and the renewal of all things when the kingdom of God fully comes on earth as it is in heaven. And so these two pictures 
these two healing miracles give us this picture of in the kingdom of God, there is more than enough. And in the kingdom of God, all things are made new. What do we take away from this? Let me make one observation that we see in both of these two healings and then offer an application for us. In these two passages, we see Jesus is deep in Gentile territory. He's deep into what would be considered spiritually dark places. And there are people that everywhere he goes run to him with a baseline level of faith and a baseline level of trust and a baseline level of knowledge of who Jesus is. And we should just notice that that's unusual. (laughs) Jesus goes into places that are hostile, enemy territory, as it were, and people come to him and they implicitly have a kind of faith and trust in Jesus. And the question is, why? How is that possible? Here's the answer. In Mark chapter 3, Crowds are forming around Jesus, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's doing miracles, and he's healing people. So much so, the crowds are pressing in around him that he had to get into a boat and go, you know, offshore to protect himself from getting basically, uh, you know, mob rushed. And it says this in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came... To him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So in chapter 3, crowds of people come to Jesus because they've heard about what he's doing. And then in chapter 7, Jesus goes to the region of Tyre, and people implicitly know who he is and come with a baseline level of faith. And the question is well, what happened between when those people witnessed Jesus? And when those people come with a baseline level of faith, what happened? The answer to that question is that those people from the crowd that day went back to their home city of Tyre and they brought the message with them. What happened is that someone went back to the city of Tyre and spoke about what they had seen and heard and experienced. The same thing is true of this other man who was healed. We read that he's from the Decapolis. Now, if you remember in chapter 5, Jesus goes to the Decapolis for the first time and he encounters a man who's possessed, who's demonized by this horde of demons. And Jesus casts out the demons and the the people of the, the city come out and they see this man sitting in his right mind and they beg Jesus to do what? To leave. So in chapter five, and it's the same word that's used in the original language. In chapter five, the people beg Jesus to leave And in chapter 7, the first thing that people do is beg Jesus to heal. And you say, well, what happened between here and here that all of a sudden they expect this of Jesus? What happened was the man who, who was demonized, who was healed, he went into the city and spoke about what he had seen and heard and experienced. That's the difference. And so the point is this. People believed because someone spoke of what they had seen, heard, and experienced. In both of these cases... Jesus goes into Gentile territory, not Jewish areas, and people who had come to see him in other areas went back to their home countries or their places where they were from, and they brought the message with them. People believed in Jesus. People trusted in Jesus. 
People had an implicit level of faith in Jesus because someone spoke of what they had seen, heard, and experienced. Elmwood is a multi-generational church family. And our mission is to invite all people into the life-giving way of Jesus. And in order to accomplish that mission, that requires that we too speak of what we have seen and heard and experienced. One of the most encouraging things about this passage is that there, no one knows the names of the people who were in the crowd watching Jesus who took the message back to the city of Tyre. No one knows who those people were. We don't know the name of this formerly demonized man. All we know is that he was a man who used to be demonized. Jesus healed him, and then he went and spoke about what he saw and heard and experienced. We don't know the names of any of these people. These are nameless, faceless people who are in a way lost to history, except for the fact that their obedience, except for the fact that them speaking about Jesus, we're still experiencing the fruitfulness of that even today. I don't know about you, but when I think about speaking of what I've seen and heard and experienced, uh, my mind is oftentimes filled with a whole lot of yeah, buts. A whole lot of, but I'm, fill in the blank. And you may say, you know, I'm, uh, but I'm not, fill in the name of, you know, the person who you know who's like a really good evangelist or whatever you want to call him. You might say, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not very articulate. I don't have all the answers. I feel like I'm kind of awkward. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure what to do. And there's all these like, yeah, but I'm not. And we fill in the blank with all those things. And in those moments, when our minds are filled with those things, what we have to remember is that there is no act of obedience that is too small to produce life-changing and eternity-altering fruit when it is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Right? There's nothing that is too small to be used by God. And, and the good news of the gospel is that when we go out and live in obedience, and when we go out and speak of what we've seen and heard, we're not doing the work anyways. So in the end, it doesn't matter if we're the most articulate. It doesn't matter if we're the most uh, you know, well-versed in the Bible and apologetic arguments and can, you know, it, that doesn't make any difference because we're not the one who's doing the work anyways. God the Spirit is taking that and he's using it to produce something that we could never produce on our own. Friends, never forget that you are sitting here today because someone spoke of what they had seen and heard and experienced. You are sitting here today because someone had the courage to speak about Jesus. Do you ever stop to think that maybe the people that shared Jesus with you felt as awkward and as uncomfortable as you feel? That maybe they looked at you and said, this person's hopeless. What's the point? Can't count how many people looked at me and said that. <laughs> Power of God at work. <laughs> you know, it, we, we have all these feelings. The, the, the people that, that helped lead you to Jesus felt the exact same way that you did, except for they lived with a trust that Jesus is the one doing the work, not me, so I can step out in faith. You are where you are today because someone stuck with you and lovingly walked with you, maybe when it was difficult, maybe when the, it was slow, when they didn't see any fruit, they still loved you and walked with you even through the midst of all of that. 
And so you are here today because someone spoke of what they had seen and heard and experienced. And so the application for us today is look to Jesus and be that person for someone else. Look to who Jesus is and be that person for someone else. Choose to live with courage and speak about what you have seen and heard and experienced. As we come to the communion table today, we get to be reminded of the good news that we see in this passage. And that good news is that in the kingdom of God, there is more than enough. The mercy and the grace of God in the person of Jesus have overflowed and washed over onto us. And even the crumbs that are underneath the table are more than enough for us. The good news is also that in the kingdom of God, all things are made new. All things will be made new. And the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus prove that one day he will wipe away every tear, that every ache, that every longing will be satisfied when the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we come to the communion table today, we get to remember the good news. In the kingdom of God, there is more than enough and all things are made new. I invite you as we do each week to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Maybe there's something that you heard today that you need to think on for a few minutes. Maybe there's something specific that comes to your mind that you need to confess to the Lord, you need to ask God's help with. Uh, Take a few moments and let's spend some time in confession and reflection.